Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. This week, we have a special edition for you. Many of you will recall that Rom was recently interviewed for a ProPublica investigation that reported on Cigna's use of an electronic system that automatically denies claims when they meet certain criteria. As they discovered, the system also denied many claims that should have been counted as medically necessary care. The story was picked up by several major media outlets, including the PBS NewsHour. When health insurance companies deny claims, an appeal is not very likely. Federal data shows that companies issued more than 49 million denials in 2021, but customers appealed only about two-tenths of one percent of them. And while some denials come with specific justifications, most explanations are vague. Ali Rogan explores how at least one major health insurance company is using artificial intelligence to assess and often deny claims in bulk. Investigative journalists at the nonprofit ProPublica found that the health insurance company Cigna uses an automated system that allows it to instantly reject claims on medical grounds without even opening the customer's file. Some are accusing Cigna of using the system to help cut costs at the expense of the patients, a claim which Cigna denies. Joining me now is Maya Miller, one of the reporters who worked on the story. We learned that there is a process that was developed um, at Cigna about a decade or so ago in which um, they created this uh, code, this computer code, this algorithm that says we're going to prove them if they match certain conditions. But if they don't match another condition, let's say uh, a diagnosis that they don't think that is worthy of that treatment, then it will be sent to the desk of a medical director, which is a company doctor. And that health, that doctor is going to be able to quickly sign off on rejecting that claim and saying, we're not going to cover it. In two months last year, that happened in an average of under two seconds. So these medical directors were essentially saying for, you know, 50 patients um, at a time, they wouldn't even open a patient file, but they were signing their name off and saying, Um, actually, this claim is not medically necessary, and so we're not going to cover it. It may be easy to think that this is a one-off, that Cigna is the only insurance carrier to utilize a system like this. But back in 2018, it was Aetna in the hot seat. Now to a CNN exclusive, California is investigating insurance giant Aetna following a stunning admission by one former medical director. The doctor admitting under oath that he never looked at patients' records when deciding whether to approve or deny care. It's leading to questions about Aetna's practices across the country. Did you ever look at medical records or basically whenever? No, I did not. In a deposition, he said he relied on information from nurses who did read the records and that he followed Aetna's policies appropriately. And even earlier this year, ProPublica published an investigation into United Healthcare. Here's the story being discussed on National Public Radio's 1A. United Healthcare argued that his treatment was, quote, not medically necessary, despite covering his medications for years. How did they explain that abrupt shift? Well, let's just, uh, if we can, just stop on that phrase, which a lot of listeners might have seen on some denial letters they've gotten, which is not medically necessary. Uh, That's got a ring of something that's like ironclad or that is grounded in something that can't be questioned by any reasonable physician or or, or expert. In fact, it's a word and phrase that has very little meaning that carries over beyond it's a decision and a judgment that the insurer makes. So not medically necessary means essentially whatever the insurer wants it to mean. The story you're going to hear today details one physician's personal experience with his own insurance carrier denying him medically necessary care. That physician is Dr. Dan Hurley. He's an otolaryngologist or an ear, nose, and throat doctor in Arizona. He reached out to us after seeing Ron on the ProPublica webinar back in March. He agreed to sit down with Ron Howergan and myself for the Flatlining podcast. And because of his condition, he's raising awareness of the ethical problems he sees when helping his own patients through insurance denials and eventually what he saw with his own care.
So I've been practicing medicine for about 22 years. I'm an otolaryngologist or ear, nose, and throat doctor. So I came out of training in 2001. Uh, and I work in general practice. Um, so I see a lot of children. I see a lot of uh, sinus disease. And uh, um, also have, a, have an administrative role in our uh, organization. You know, what are your favorite and least favorite parts about medicine? Because we all, all, we all have stuff we love about our jobs, and then we all have the stuff that we really hate doing. And I'm, I'm curious, in your, in your particular experience, what, what is that for you? Um, I mean, my favorite part is, or I'll, uh, there's a lot of things, but I'll focus on two. Uh, one, you get the opportunity every once in a while to find someone who's had a problem for years. Um, and I'll, as an ENT, I'll, fo- I'll pick someone who can't breathe through their nose and it affects their sleep. It affects their life. It affects all kinds of things. And you're seeing them for maybe something else. And you say, Hey, by the way, did you notice that? And then they go through the whole process and they decide they want to improve that. And they come back and they're happy. And I'm like, you've changed their life. This is great. They didn't even, you know, they have an improvement that they weren't even uh, looking for. And then of course, people in great need is uh, when you can help them, that is uh, uh, very rewarding. Um, and then I love, I mean, I just like interacting with kids. I like taking care of the medical problem, but they have no filter. There is no agenda. And so the ability to interact with them in the office on a one-on-one basis is priceless, as is the ability to potentially give them a little bit more comfort when they're in an uh, uh, environment that might be scary for them. What are two things about your particular specialty, in your case, ENT work, uh, that most people, patients, or even other providers don't really know or understand very well, because each specialty has all of its you know nuances and complexities, and sometimes we forget about particular things. So, so what are two things that you think people ought to know about your specialty? Uh, first thing is, I don't think people know who we are until they need us, because we decided to call us otolaryngologists, <laughs> and who knows what that means. Right. And then we also abbreviate that as ENT, which is my preference, and then usually people think I'm a first responder. Uh, and so um, it is its own specialty and its breadth is huge. So, you know, it can be anything from uh, uh, helping the neurosurgeons with repairing CSF leaks uh, to helping neurosurgeons with uh, tumors that are on the auditory nerve to ear infections, to sinus infections, to obviously the ability to breathe through your nose, to uh, cosmetics of the face, to pediatrics, to the voice, to head and neck cancer. So, You know, if you have a problem with uh, um, uh, or needing a lot of things to learn, there's there's a lot of subject matter and you have the opportunity to really hone in and become an expert on any sort of corner you like or act as a quarterback for people who have problems with, you know, their ear, nose and throat that come in and you can help most of them. And then when you when it's beyond your expertise, you go ahead and uh, quarterback them to the uh, subject matter for expert that can help them the most. And what got you initially interested in that? What, what got you interested in, into being a medical doctor in the practice of medicine, and then in particular in your specialty? So the medical doctor part would be probably a combination of, you know, my dad was a physician, although he advised against me, you know, following in that path. Uh, but I liked the, uh, the science courses coming up. I like the intellectual challenge. And then as you get a little closer, you get the chance to make an impact on someone that it's really hard to do in any other, um, you know, area of expertise. Uh, And then once I got through medical school, I actually thought I was going to be a pediatrician. uh, And um, that was my plan. I'll go ahead and do my pediatrics residency. But I was a little bit uh, disconcerted with my lack of expertise at looking in people's ears. And so I said, you know what I'll do? I'll uh, do a four week rotation with the ear, nose and throat doctors. And hopefully they can rectify that for me. Um, which they did, which is, you know, good to know, uh, if you're seeing them in the office. And, uh, but once I saw ENT, I was like, Oh, this is great. I can see adults. I can see kids. I can do surgery. I can, you know, uh, and so I was hooked. So I kind of, uh, uh, got an ENT through the back door. Uh, but that's how I ended up there. Now, if you don't mind my asking, why, why was your, your father not so interested that you go into medicine? That's hard to say. I mean, I think it was probably a little bit of, you know, we all talk about the golden age of medicine. And, and to me, I think, eh, you know, everybody comes through and says, oh, I got here just in time. I'm an optimist. So I think we can make it better. 
but he did come through in a time when there's a little less uh, probably uh, oversight and uh, red tape. And I think he was very concerned with where he saw the system going. So as far as the subject matter, you know, he was still going to meetings in, in his 80s. I think he still does now. Uh, so he, he he's very interested. Uh, but the uh, direction uh, of medicine from a business standpoint was not something that he was sure we should sign ourselves up for. The business aspect of American healthcare has been a topic of criticism by politicians, patients, and even some physicians. Its failures, particularly the price of our healthcare, have been a frequent topic of debate. I met a couple in Appleton, Wisconsin, and they said, we're thinking of dropping our insurance, we can't afford it. And the number of small businesses I've gone to that are saying they're dropping insurance because they can't afford it, the cost of healthcare is just prohibitive. And, and we've got to deal with cost. They had a pre-existing condition. Uh, they might not be able to get coverage at all. If they did have coverage, insurance companies might impose an arbitrary limit. Uh, and so as a consequence, they're paying their premiums. Somebody gets really sick. Lo and behold, they don't have enough money uh, to pay the bills because the insurance companies uh, say that uh, they've hit the limit. Because you have insurance people that take care of everybody up here. I'm a self-funder. The only one they're not taking care of is me. We have our lines around each state. The insurance companies are getting rich on Obamacare. The insurance companies are getting rich on health care and health services and everything having to do with health. 29 million Americans still have zero health insurance and many of you are underinsured with high deductibles and high co-payments. With conversations like this as the norm, it's no wonder some Americans interested in becoming physicians might want to stay out of the healthcare industry. In addition to cost, one of the intense frustrations that physicians feel comes from dealing with the insurance companies even when they're supposed to cover a service. Oftentimes, it may require an exception to one or more of their policies, which requires peer-to-peer -peer phone calls and other appeals to the patient's carrier. As Dr. Hurley will explain in a little bit, he experienced this with his family when trying to have Aetna pay for care for one of his children. Later, it would affect him personally when he received his own diagnosis. So, you know, um, one, I'm a terrible patient, and two, I'm very lucky. So I was at 2021. Um, I started developing, uh, some hip and leg pain. I'm a pretty avid hiker and I would hike every Saturday morning with a friend. And I just assumed if I hiked a little harder, it would probably get better. Uh, and so I did that for about six months. I actually went to physical therapy during that time, which is a huge step for me. And it seemed to get better. And after, um, um, multiple months, somebody in my office saw me walking and said, who, who had experience in orthopedics and said, Go get your scan. What are you doing? Uh, so I got my scan and was diagnosed as having a um, pelvic bone chondrosarcoma, which is a pretty rare tumor. And then it was a, a whirlwind. Um, you know, we went into uh, damage control mode. You know, fortunately, when you've been in the medical industry for 20 years, we have a lot of contacts. We reached out. Uh, really is uh, humbling to... Uh, get that attention for everybody of who should I see? You know, I'm a big fan of multiple opinions when you have a rare disease. So we went and did that and then ended up having surgery at the Mayo Clinic Phoenix where they uh, do something called a hemipelvectomy. So they take off your half your pelvic bone. Amazingly, they can now 3D print your pelvic bone to match out of, I'm going to call it nanotechnology because that sounds cool. But, uh, uh, and then they put that in and you get a bonus hip with that. And of course they have to take out, you know, other things. So that's a pretty big recuperation, but after six months, I can pretty much walk um, long distance as I need a cane. My pathology unfortunately came back with a uh, pretty aggressive variant. And so uh, we needed, uh, um, uh, I elected to do chemo um, and then did fine. And then in December had a recurrence 
And I'm still working through that from a treatment trial, which wasn't working, to now getting shifted to new chemo and radiation. Um, uh, and learned a lot uh, and have been really blown away by the gratitude that you can have for the people who care for you. I, I practiced in medicine for 20 years. I, I thought I would have known that, but I, I didn't until I got to the other side. Mm-hmm. What was your re- initial reaction to your, to your diagnosis? Um, I think there was a, um, I mean, we didn't expect it, of course, as you don't. I think that it took a while for it to really sink in. Um, we tend to be problem solvers. So, you know, the minute we had the diagnosis, it was a flurry of who do we know? How can we crowdsource anyone who knows about this disease to figure out who I should see? Um, and where should I see them? And let's get that done as fast as possible. Um, because, you know, as a physician, you know that, well, I probably had that thing for a year or more before I found it. And a day or two here, a day or two there may not make a difference. But as a patient, you say, well, maybe it won't, maybe it will, but if it's all the same to you, let's get this done yesterday. And so we went through that flurry of, uh, uh, that, and it was probably, I don't know, it's probably even after I had my big surgery where it just kind of settles in and it's this roller coaster of hope trying to, you know, you, you've got your life to live. So you want to keep on um, working with your family and, you know, whatever else interests you. Um, and then, uh, there's some downsides, of course, when you have a recurrence and realize you have metastatic disease that has some implications that are, um, you hope nobody else has to deal with, but there's people walking around that you meet every day that are dealing with this, that, you know, uh, you don't even know that, that that's their problem, but when they go home at night, they got to think about it. So, and what does your prognosis look like? Um, well, I'm an optimist, but my prognosis is generally terrible. Um, if you uh, said, uh, I have a de-differentiated chondrosarcoma. So if you, you know, as a physician, you can't help but just know the numbers. Um, as a patient, you realize you're not a number and you're going to try and be an outlier. But, my, you know, the probability that we can have this podcast in a few years would be statistically unlikely. You, I mentioned you'd reached out to us uh, after Ron's ProPublica interview uh, because you seem to be having a similar issue with your insurance provider, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Arizona. And before we get to that particular issue, what's your general opinion of, of them uh, as your insurer? I mean, have you had many problems with them in the past or was it more, um, you know, just a, a useful thing that you, you know, was it just you didn't really have any problems with it or were you cur- constantly having issues with Blue Cross up until this point? Well, this could go off the rails in multiple directions, but <laughs> I would say that because so, I have experience with Blue Cross as a um, provider for years, a yep. physician, mm-hmm. and I have experience uh, with negotiations with them, uh, and Blue Cross is different. So if it's Blue Cross of Arizona versus Blue Cross of uh, um, one of the anthems, it yep. can be very different from mm-hmm. what we see. So... First, I would say I think that the way out of this is collaboration and insurers are a part of the system and they have to be part of the solution. Um, Number two, it's not just Blue Cross. What Mm -hmm. really uh, uh, motivated me to kind of say I need to do something, this problem was a completely different insurer, uh, which was Aetna with my son and the experience of having to talk to a GI guy about why some patient who I have has who has a sinus problem needs a CT, which is just wrong on its face for almost every major insurer signal you edited over the years. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, now I, I'm probably getting off track there. So, but the things that I think are take home are the insurers are going to have to be part of the solution. There are some great people that work there that will get there, but initially it is a wall as a patient. You can't talk to them. You get denials. You talk to people who don't even know why you got denied. Mm-hmm. Um, does that answer your question? Or am I off? No, that, that, that's yet? good. I, I, that's good because I, it's interesting to hear from some providers about their their particular experiences with one or all the payers, and 
almost across the board, it's negative. I, I do want to throw it over to Ron real quick and, and ask him, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, why why is it that they do that? I mean, you worked on the payer side for many years. Why is that the case? Well, I think there, there's a couple of things. But first of all, when Dr. Early and I talked, what, what really struck me and why I'm, I'm so happy that he wants to sort of share his thoughts and feelings and get his story out is, you know, he has a perspective of seeing this from the provider side, the physician side, from the parent side, and from the patient side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, he still says, hey, insurers have to be part of the solution, which I agree with, um, you know, lends credibility to what he's saying and saying that he's not just saying burn down the system. He's saying, let's fix the system because it's not working for me as a, as a physician. Um, when I have to talk to a GI physician about my specialty, that's, that's crazy. It's not working for me as a parent with what his son went through. And it's not working for me as a patient. And, you know, he says he's a, he's a lousy patient, but he's also a well-informed patient. There are a lot of patients who run into that brick wall that can't get around it or mm-hmm. through it or over it because they don't have the connections. They don't know how to do it. And they're just, you know, they're learning big words and not even knowing what it means when they talk about their diagnosis. But to get back to your question, um, a big part of why carriers do this is because they understand that 5% of the U.S. population consumes 50% of all the cost. And these are people either with long-term chronic diseases like diabetes or COPD or MS or very acute situations like Dr. Hurley's. And so they don't want to attract an adverse selection or an adverse proportion of those people. So they have this financial incentive to make it difficult for folks that really need their their services the most so that some of those folks will hopefully throw up their hands and say, look, I'm gonna go from Blue Cross to Cigna or from Cigna to Aetna or from Aetna to United. Because if you think about it, and back when I worked for the insurance side, if I could figure out a way to get even a small percentage of that top 5% to go to one of my competitors, it increases my profit profitability dramatically. And so from my perspective, one of the problems in this system is this real adverse you know, incentive relationship. The people who need them the most, the people who are dealing with things like Dr. Hurley's dealing with, are the ones that they wanna really service the least. Um, and that's a really bizarre sort of, you know, economic um, perverse incentive. Well, I'm going to go back on Ron's comment there for a second and just just make the comment that, you know, the system really falls apart at the edges. But it, and that, that would include those people he's talking about. But ethically, that's not OK. It's an interesting dichotomy, too, in, in the medical industry, because you have this, as Dr. Hurley explained at the beginning, you know, you got into medicine in a lot, a lot of ways to help people. Um, and it seems almost uh, it, from hearing your story and from hearing other stories that the, the payer side of it just seems to be the complete opposite. But I agree that you're right. There, there has to be some sort of common ground here where the insurance companies have to be uh, involved. At what point in your diagnosis did you start to have issues um, with Blue Cross Blue Shield in this particular instance? So when I started to experience the issues with payers was – uh, I think it was my first PET scan before my surgery, but that one went the way most people have, which most people don't get too involved in their uh, prior offs or prior mm-hmm. authorization or approvable care. That came through, I think my surgeon or her physician's assistant made a peer-to-peer call and pushed it through and it, it got approved. Okay. Uh, and then the next one that really started to, the ball rolling was after I'd had my surgery, um, I had a a uh, rare subset that was, uh, had a high, very high mortality rate. And mm-hmm. so we did chemo and my oncologist said, I want to do chemo or a PET scan before your chemo. Uh, and for people who don't know, a PET scan is a, a scan that, uh, where they inject radioactive glucose and that tumors burn more glucose than the rest of you. And so it's kind of a, what else do you have going on here, scan? So right. do you have anything in your lungs? Is there any disease that we know of before we start treating you? Uh, uh, so that scan didn't quite fall into their criteria because I'd had a scan a few months earlier. Now, whoever's reviewing that, the physician or doesn't understand, but he's already had surgery and he's de-differentiated. So that was ordered a month before my chemo was supposed to start by my oncologist. My oncologist did a peer-to-peer where they couldn't get a hold of the physician who uh, 
from uh, the insurer, mm -hmm. and it was a he said, she said. It went through one physician uh, review, two physician reviews, and then finally to a expert who denied it. And the nurse called me and said, it's denied. And I'm a friendly person, but I am persistent. And I said, okay, great. What's your name? Who made the decision? And she's like, I can't tell you the doctor that made the decision, which is a travesty. Someone's mm -hmm. deciding my care and you don't want to tell me who he is. Right. Maybe he's the worldwide expert. Maybe I should go see him in the office. So uh, I said, great. Um, oh, but when you get your denial in the mail, you can write in and figure out who he is. And uh, I've done this on further care. So I said to her, do you realize that I have de-differentiated metastatic or de-differentiated chondrosarcoma? Do you realize that the uh, um, guidelines that your physician is probably looking at don't apply to me because they're looking at chondrosarcoma guidelines, but I've educated myself and I know that because I'm de-differentiated, you should be looking at osteosarcoma and sorry mm -hmm. to get into the weeds, but uh, even on their guidelines, I should have been approved. Well, that nurse went back and instead of just hanging up the phone, which probably is what would happen with most of them, right. she found a medical director and he approved it. And that was great, except for the fact that I was supposed to start chemo the next day. Mm -hmm. So I had to decide between starting chemo, which hopefully is going to save my life, and delaying it to get a scan that they should have approved three weeks ago. Well, I chose to delay it or to do the chemo mm -hmm. because that was associated with my survival, hopefully. And I knew that it would only matter if I recurred because whether or not there was tumor in my body before I started the chemo is important to know if the chemo worked, but if I never see it again. So in December, I recurred. And ironically, when they first came back, they wanted to do another PET scan. And they said, but we already approved one a few months ago. And I'm like, well, actually you did, but that was the one that I couldn't get because you took too long. And now, you know, the horse is out of the barn. Now I've got a real problem. Well, and, and, and what's important to understand is, uh, you know, as I look at this from a, from a process perspective and what the system does, your, your oncologist was at Mayo? Correct. Okay. So I'm guessing, and I don't know the oncologist, if he's an oncologist at Mayo, probably pretty well educated in his field. Okay. Um, now, if, for example, somebody would have been reviewing that PET scan at the very beginning and said, wow, this doesn't seem to meet criteria. I wonder what's going on. And the payer had, had an oncologist contact your oncologist to have a 10 minute peer to peer. My guess is in less than 10 minutes, you would have, oh, okay, I get it now. You're right. That makes sense. You know, your oncologist wasn't ordering something just willy-nilly, but that didn't happen. This is where the system breaks down. And luckily, Dr. Hurley was, A, educated and persistent enough to sort of push through it. But even with that, it created a sort of a, a catch-22 for him. You know, do I start something that's going to hopefully save my life or do I delay it while I do this? And that should have never been the case in mm -hmm. my in my opinion, um, because it wasn't a, a terribly controversial thing if all the clinical facts had been relayed. And then you add in the insult injury of, I can't know who it is. So I don't even at this time know if it was somebody who, you know, is educated or qualified to be making this determination and all that stuff. I mean, that this is the kind of thing that sort of drives people nuts because A, it shouldn't have to be that hard. Mm -hmm. This was not a controversial thing that was being requested given the presentation. And it does impact lives. The carriers will try to get out of this by saying, well, we're not saying you couldn't have it. We're just saying we're not going to pay for it, which for, you know, the vast majority of the population looking at the price of a PET scan really means you're not going to get it because right. they can't afford to do it. So, you know, I think it's, it's important to understand, and you know, that this isn't just a an administrative function. It really does impact patient's care as it did here. Dr. Hurley, did you ever find out uh, who the medical director was that denied it? Um, the initial one, no. Now, I now uh, a couple of things I'm going to uh, tag team on Ron's comment. This mm -hmm. is really about transparency and trust in the system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a patient should be able to know who made it. So in, in this case, I don't know who was the physician, although I can probably dig through my records. I was, I was an immature patient at this time. I didn't understand how the system worked. Mm -hmm. uh, in, previous, in future episodes, um, 
when they've had to do a peer-to-peer, it's been a family practice doctor or who's not actually practicing medication or medicine at this time, or a pediatrician who's not actually practicing medicine. So just think about that as a cancer patient when you, you know, the people who don't understand the system enough to try and push through, it really feels like your insurance company is trying to kill you. Mm -hmm. And they're not, well, I think, but but that's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. And so we have a couple of things to unpeel there, which is, well, okay, family practice doc, what are you doing? If I go down the street and open up a, you know, uh, cardiac cath lab, the medical board will show up pretty fast saying, didn't we see you putting ear tubes in over the day? Right. What, what are you doing? You know? And so, but here we're hiding behind, we don't know who that person is. Um, now, ironically, the medical director that overturned it, but too late, um, it, or I guess it'd be more serendipitously would be a better term, but serendipitously, the medical director that overturned it too late is now my biggest advocate because he got, uh, it, he was the person who was assigned to speak with me when we said, how do we talk to somebody bigger here? You know? Mm-hmm. Ron, tell me a little bit about why specialty doesn't seem to matter when it comes to medical directors. Well, and then this is, I think, and not really much, you know, one of the biggest problems in the system is there's a lack of accountability and lack of transparency. And everywhere else in medicine, those two things, those two barriers don't exist. For example, um, if Dr. Hurley were, were my physician treating me and he put notes in his chart, legally, that's my chart. I can get it anytime I want to. It's my possession. I can, you know, so he can't hide things in the chart from me. I'm the patient. I own that information and I should. And there should be that transparency. Well, that doesn't occur inside the the insurer system. You can't say, I want to see the notes. I want to see the name of the physician. Mm -hmm. The other thing is everywhere else in medicine, when a physician does something, they order something, they make a decision, they make a referral, whatever, they sign it. They sign that chart. Now, now it's electronically back when, you know, I started working in this industry, it was paper. Um, and they take responsibility for that. If, if uh, a radiologist misses a read on my brain MRI, his or her name is at the bottom of that read. I know who's responsible. Again, that doesn't happen in the payer side because you can't sort of figure out who it is. You don't, as the patient, have access to that information. And they have zero responsibility. If a medical director... Um, denies something inappropriately and that patient has a bad outcome, that medical director can't be sued for malpractice. Um, and again, they've got this get out of jail free card that says, well, I'm not making, I'm not practicing medicine here. Um, I'm just making benefit determinations, which I think is a, you know, tomato, tomato, semantic kind of a thing. So because they're not quote unquote practicing medicine, they don't have to be within their field of specialty. As Dr. Early pointed out, he started trying to do heart caths. He couldn't say, well, I'm a doctor. He's outside of his field of specialty. He can mm-hmm. be held responsible for that. Um, they don't have to be licensed in the state where they're issuing the denial. Um, they don't have to have had you know, any experience actually treating patients for the last 20 years. They don't have to maintain board certification or any sort of you know, continuing ed credits. All they have to have is a valid license MD behind their name, and they can sign off on anything. And that's a real problem of not only transparency, but accountability. If those physicians had to be practicing in their specialty, had to be licensed in the state where they're issuing the denial and could be held responsible for the results of their decisions, I think you'd see a very different outcome um, than what we're seeing on this stuff. And how did we get there from, from, from where we started? Why did that become the norm, Ron? Well, it, it sort of developed when you know, managed care started to take over. Before that, when you realized in the old indemnity world, there weren't really approvals. So just, you know, people, there was the 80-20 indemnity world. There wasn't this idea of, of approvals and medical directors. And what happened was the insurance companies were very good at their lobbying and the legislative um, regulations, both state and federal, never caught up and made them accountable. Um, they sat outside of this um of the normal provision of care by saying, I'm just making benefit determinations. I'm not, I'm not providing care. 
Um, and that I think is one of the ways, you know, shining a light on it is obviously helpful, but then one of the other ways to fix it is it's gotta be legislated some reasonable rules that will protect patients around this kind of stuff. Dr. Hurley, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that there's obviously there's ethical problems with, with this. Go ahead and, and share with me what you were thinking about that. Well, that, that is a segue from what Ron just mentioned in that, he, you know, when, if someone says this isn't medical care, I'd say, but it is because mm-hmm. if you're delaying care by days to weeks before I even get the right to say, well, then I'll just pay cash, assuming I'm lucky enough to be able to afford that, that is medical care. So when we need, first we need transparency and then we need accountability that says, uh, yes, indeed, uh, Dr. So-and-so. I see that you reviewed this chart and you delayed it by three weeks. And over the course of my, you know, let's say I get a three year cancer journey, that'd be a pretty good one for me. Uh, that amounts to a month of delays. We don't know how much it impacted his, 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 his problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you, there's ethics in two parts of this, there's one, the ethics of the physicians, and this should be pretty easy to, uh, or if we, get a little light in the system it should be easy because people will probably be ashamed hopefully and stop doing it um even since i've been a physician you started to see oh now they're having people with a medical license sign up because mm-hmm. they're trying to cover that but it's it's a medical director that really works in washington who's got multiple licenses so they can sign off on the reviewer in the expert in new jersey who isn't right thinking that somehow that makes it better so the physicians themselves have to have the ethics to say, would I want myself or my family member treated by me for this problem, which you really should be asking, both if you're a clinical physician in practice or if you're reviewing cases? And if the answer is no, well, wouldn't, shouldn't you get them to somebody who's really reviewing that? Mm-hmm. And then the other part of the ethics is on the business side, where you know, in an era where we see pretty strong balance sheets and on the public traded companies, pretty good returns. And we, of course, of course, can look at executive compensation. It seems to be going up. Can we really, is it really ethical to be saying we are not spending on those people who've been paying for their whole life? This is what insurance is. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and we're going to limit that. And we're actually going to set up a system that doesn't have an escape valve to hurt them or make them feel, even if it's not true, that their insurance company is trying to harm them. I mean, how many people, if you ask them, said, do you think your insurance company is looking out for your best interest? Even people with regular medical problems would be, uh, answer that, no, I think a pretty high percentage of the time. Mm -hmm, And then one of the saddest things about that is that there are some great people in the insurance industry who are really trying to work for people as patients, but they get lost behind this, this system. Who did a lot of the the heavy lifting when it came to deal with the payers in your particular diagnosis? Was it you or, or your, uh, your oncologist or other physicians? Most of the time it's the, um, uh, doctor that does the heavy lifting. Once I start having a problem, you know, I have started to uh, become very proactive. And I'll say, do you need any help with that off? Mm-hmm. Can I call? Can I uh, advocate for myself? You know, I've had problems with this in the past. I don't want to. Uh, there, It's a double-edged sword. The system works pretty darn well for most people. Mm-hmm. But so you don't want to throw a wrench in it and try to be too special. The flip side is if you can see a train coming, it's nice to to get out of the way. Yep. So I've done a lot of lifting. And then in the last three months, since I, you know, got assigned a care coordinator, that person has done tremendous amounts of lifting. And it's almost funny because it's like this civil war between the care coordinator who sometimes reaches out to the medical director, trying to keep my care from being delayed by the system that's been set in place to not by the care coordinator or the medical director, but it's who they work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so uh, it's, it's a it's a multi-person effort is how I would write that. 
in your experience practicing medicine for your patients, had you ever had to do any sort of lifting as heavy as this for your particular diagnosis? Um, short answer is no, mm-hmm. meaning I was probably a little bit of a uh, curmudgeon in that when I had to do a peer-to-peer, I would make it clear, hello, doctor. Oh, can I just ask what your specialty is? Can I ask if you're practice a license in the mm-hmm. state of Arizona? If So if you're, you're denying the scan, uh, if they want to come see you for an opinion, where should they come see you? And these are all questions that are just sure. yeah. me pointing out to them that they have an ethical problem. Yep. But more often than not, when you're dealing with this, well, what I believed previously was more often than not, when you're dealing with a subspecialist, which I was a subspecialist, uh, the peer-to-peer will say yes, which also begs the question, if you're always saying yes, why are you putting up the the wall? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that the only thing that changed when I um, got my diagnosis was I happened to get a rare diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the edge, you know, uh, and I'm one of the 2% or 3% or whatever it is. And then it just opened my eyes saying, okay, it is hard enough to deal with a cancer diagnosis and a probable fatal diagnosis in the next few years, and you've got kids, and now you can't work anymore. Are you a properly insured? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the, your whole world's falling apart. And now someone's telling you, oh, you, your scan's denied, or you can't have it for another three weeks, or you can't have this treatment, which is the treatment that the subject matter, matter expert in your area has recommended and how, how do we expect those people and families one to get through the day and then two to actually be able to heal and or grieve and or celebrate um but with a big focus on the healing and grieving saying you know what that was terrible but at least we know they got great care that was indicated in an expeditious fashion mm-hmm. and the thing that gets lost here is that the system has been going for so long that people forget that guidelines are not a support, a substitute for clinical judgment. Mm-hmm. And that if you have a subject matter expert in your disease and they recommend care, that care is indicated, period. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what your insurance says. Yeah, and the other thing that I think is important to say, and I completely agree with Dr. Riley, I mean, the last thing a patient in his situation should be dealing with is the heavy lifting on authorization. His energy should be focused on healing and being with his family and doing the things that he needs to do and grieving and all those other things. This should never be any part of any patient's day in this kind of situation. It's being treated by the right physicians who know what they're doing and they should be trusted. The other thing people need to understand is these peer review things that they're requiring these doctors to do, the treating physicians, A, they don't have time to do it. You know, they're already overloaded. We've got a physician shortage in this country and they're not incredibly efficient, nor are they largely with what that physician would deem to be a peer. Right now in North Carolina, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina has decided that there are certain rheumatology drugs that they just aren't going to approve, okay? And patients have been on these drugs for a long time. The rheumatologists who are the experts in this area say this is the right drug. And they've now just told these rheumatologists that there will be no peer-to-peer, that when the denial happens and they appeal that denial, sometime within the next 24 to 48 hours, a pharmacist will call you. Now, think about a busy rheumatology practice. So we've got to watch for that call realize who it is, try to catch the doctor, hopefully they're in office, pull them out of an exam room so they can talk to a pharmacist about a drug that they prescribe and are experts in. That's insane, in my opinion. And they're dealing with people with very long-term you know, chronic illnesses that, that have a lot of debilitating impacts on their daily life and that who switching drugs could really you know, reduce their quality of life. So it's not even that it's this easy thing to happen to do a peer-to-peer. They've made that process incredibly hard, and it should, in my opinion, never happen that way.
That raises the question about solutions. If you're of one political persuasion, you might be thinking something like this. In my view, we must move forward toward a Medicare for all single payer program. If you're of another, it might be this. We're going to take out the artificial boundaries, the artificial lines. We're going to get a plan where people compete, free enterprise, they compete so much better. In addition, in addition to that, in addition to that, you have the health care savings plans, which are excellent. At Flatlining, we tend to think that neither of these are the complete solution. But what we do know is that some regulation is necessary to make sure that patients are able to get the care that they need. I asked both Ron and Dr. Hurley about what they hope to see in the future. As you look to the future of, of American health care, what do you see the solution being that's going to you know, keep both the payers happy on the one hand, keep patients healthy and happy, and keep providers uh, happy and, and feeling like they're, they've been appreciated? And I guess, Ron, we'll start with you and then we'll go to Dr. Hurley. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist like Dr. Hurley, and I think there's a lot of things that we've got going for us. I will argue till the end of the time, uh, anybody wants to say that there's better quality care somewhere else than here. Clinical quality of care, we are second to none. You just, you, you know, you hear about Dr. Hurley talking about the surgery he had with a 3D printed part of his pelvis. So, he, you know, there's no place I would rather go for a very difficult problem than in this country because we have some incredible specialists and incredible advances in technology and treatment. So we've got that going for us. I'm still amazed at the dedication, the commitment to um, clinical care and to serving patients that, you know, the physicians, the nurses, et cetera, still have in this system because they, they deal with a very difficult system and it just blows me away that um, there's still that level of care. That's, you know, I think that's a real positive. We're an incredibly affluent country, the most affluent country in the world. We should be able to figure out a way to, to care for everybody in the country. Um, we've got the money to do it. We're not a third world nation. Um, the challenge is going to be reforming the system so that, and I'm not one that says we should get rid of all insurance company, they're inherently evil, but we've got to reform the system and change the rules of the game that they play under and get rid of some of these perverse incentives. Um, if we change the rules of the game, get rid of the person perverse incentives and make them do things and they all have to do it then, then there won't be an incentive to say, well, if we do it the right way, these other guys are going to cheat and we'll, we'll lose financially. So you know, that's my feeling of what we need, what needs to happen and, and what we've got going for us. Dr. Hurley. Yeah. I mean, I, I am, uh, uh, share the optimism that it really, we're going to need optimism from the, um, and, you know, making tough decisions from legislators, uh, potentially attorneys, and most importantly, those healthcare leaders in the insurance side, because the real message here is that patients deserve the same level of accountability and transparency from their insurance physicians that we have assigned to practicing physicians through medical boards and medical legal liability. And if you put that in place, this will disappear. Uh, and then second, as consumers of healthcare, whether you work for a big company or buy your own insurance or um, are run a big company, we have to hold these insurance companies accountable and then reward them when they act with mercy and empathy to ourselves, our employees, and our families. I'm coming up on my last question here, Dr. Hurley, and this is this is something I've asked Ron before, and, and I think it's, it's good to ask pretty much anyone we talk to in this particular field. And that's that you've shared a lot of your story. You shared your story today. You shared your experiences with us and and, and what you hope that, that will change in the future. And my question is, is what, what is your personal motivation for doing this? Obviously, there's the care aspect of being a physician. But, you know, what do you hope to accomplish by, by sharing your story, by making sure that other people uh, hear some of your experiences and bringing to light some of these issues that a lot of Americans aren't aware of? Well, I mean... I, it's not that different from what I try to do as a physician. I want to help somebody. And I see something that's uh, completely unjust. I think that it is uh, how much it affects people's care emotionally. Uh, 
is not understood, but is huge. I actually believe it likely affects outcomes. You know, if you if you're a physician and you look at people with cancer and and and, and medical problems that are unusual, you'll say this person's doing great and this person isn't. Is it attitude? Is it mindset? And like. Is it the fact that this person gets delayed by three weeks every time they try to get treatment and this person actually gets done? Medicare does a better job of it, you know? Um, I, and I'm not uh, in any way saying uh, proposing Medicare for all with that. So, you know, I guess if I have to put it down to that one goal, I'm like, no, we, we need that transparency and accountability. And if I can help prevent one or a thousand or a million parents, because I went through this with my son sure. who had, you know, care denied uh, and then myself from going what I go through or maybe at least giving them a little bit of agency, understanding you don't have to, yes, the system is currently broken. Yes, hopefully we can fix it. But you, here are some paths that you can use. And just because your insurance company tells you no, don't roll over, start keeping records, learn your disease, figure out who is uh, making decisions in your care. And maybe the single most important thing for a single patient who is going through this right now and saying, I don't have time for, you know, uh, Ron to fix this for me. Uh, I would, I would say personalize yourself to your insurance company. Try and get them to give you a care coordinator. It is much harder to say no to the person when someone understands, hey, this is Dan Early. He has three kids. He's probably going to die in the next few years, but he's trying to make it as long as he can. And he needs this scan that falls outside the guidelines. Uh, if you can find that right person with your insurer, it will tremendously improve your life. I don't think we can get that for everybody, but to any person who's listening who has a cancer or a chronic disease that is running into this kind of thing, um, see if you can get there. It'll help a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Hurley, thank you very, very much for your time and, and sharing your story here on the Flatlining Podcast. We appreciate it very much. Oh, thanks for having me. Dr. Hurley's story is one that many American patients face. You can read more testimonies and articles about denials of medically necessary care, including the ProPublica investigations, at flatlining.net or in the description for this program. That does it for this special edition of the Flatlining Podcast. Again, we want to thank Dr. Dan Hurley for sitting down with us for this program and have him know that we will be optimists with you in hoping for a speedy recovery. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. We'll talk to you soon.